0: Liberty listeners for another podcast Um, and we're so happy that you're here with us. This time we have actually a dear friend of mine, Claire Crisp, who has just authored her very first book and we're excited to tell you all about that and all about how she got to this point in her career. So Claire, take it away. Uh, It's so nice to have you. Thank you. Um, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit, since the book that we're going to talk about is so much about your personal life. Mm-hmm. Before you tell us that, tell us who you were professionally before you yeah. started doing this.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I was born and raised in in West London, and I went to college um, actually at the Florence, Florence Nightingale Hospital called St Thomas's, and I trained to be a physical therapist, which was amazing. And I, I went on working. Um, in London area hospitals for the next 10 years so so that part of my my career was very much clinically grounded and um, I went from there to um, moving towards part-time work in the evenings once I had my first two children um, in my early 30s and then uh, having um, got married to an academic the those years were spent very much traveling around trying to find a job and secure tenure and um, move to various countries for postdocs and so on. So I had these two little children and this sort of this this career that was waning really and um, decided at that point it was in their best interest for me to home educate them which um, was another kind of um, dormant passion of, of learning and, and reading and, and having these little kids with me. So Um, The next 10 years were spent actually being based at home and schooling the older two um, until Matilda was born, which was in 2006.
0: So that's a great um, place for us to, um, share with our listeners a little bit about your book, which is called Waking Matilda. So why don't you, um, just give us a little bit of that story. Um, we want our listeners to go out and grab the book as well. So don't give too much away, (laughs) but share with us, um, a little bit about what, um, what your life was like before before the, the author status.
1: <laughs> okay, so Matilda um, was a very sort of typical, healthy, bonny little girl. And um, we'd spent her, her, the second year of her life in Princeton, and the older two were nine and seven, respectively. Um, and come back to the UK to, to settle back into our lives there. And at the time, the World Health Organization... Issued uh, a warning about this pandemic called swine flu. Um, some of your listeners will recognize that as, as the H1N1 vaccine. And um, the European government sent letters to all parents, actually, with children under the age five, strongly recommending them to have their little children vaccinated. And um, we, we actually had never vaccinated or since, of course, um, for flu. But Matilda was born with a really minor respiratory condition that made her uh, particularly susceptible to complications of, um, of swine flu. So after a, um, a long kind of thoughtful process, Oliver and I decided perhaps this was the one time that we would have one of our children vaccinated. So I took Matilda off to our GP clinic Um, in January 2010. And within weeks of that vaccination, she began to display a really um, bizarre plethora of neurological symptoms. And as a clinician, I realized at the time, although the symptoms were somewhat staggered, um, I was very much aware of how serious they were. And um, we spent the next six months going in and out of hospital, And trying Mm. to find some answers for um, her symptoms, which were
0: you assigning at all? uh, Assigning her symptoms to the vaccination at that point? No, No, not at all. Absolutely not.
1: No, I mean the first symptom, which was rather odd, was that she suddenly was unable to sleep at night, and what she did do. I mean, we now know it to be something called hypnagogic hallucinations. But but of course, without a name or a label at the time, we just thought she was having really terrible dreams and and for some reason just could not sustain sleep. So we were up with her a lot at night and and she also began um, sleeping excessively during the daytime. Like one minute I'd be speaking to her and the next minute she'd be on the floor asleep behind my feet and I'd nearly trip over her or, or I'd say to the children, you know, just go ahead and get in the car. I'll be there in a minute. And she's asleep literally on the driveway. So there were some really serious symptoms. And, um, the first of those, um, was actually a a pretty, pretty dramatic collapse that she had at my parents' house just about five weeks after the vaccine. And I took her into hospital and, um, we were sent home saying that she had a urinary infection and I was quite relieved and thinking, well, it's pretty extreme, but, um, there was a sense of relief, but of course the symptoms kind of came, um, thick and fast after that. And we went in and out to our local children's hospital in Bristol, um, and initially, they thought she had a cerebellar brain tumor, b- tumor because she was unable to walk in a straight line, and she was slurring her speech, and she'd become incontinent, and and gradually. How old
0: is she again? She was three. At time? Okay. She was three. Okay. So
1: she was very articulate, but because she was becoming sick, she was unable to really explain what was happening. So I was kind of drawing on my kind of maternal intuition. Uh, And also my experience as a clinician and, and adding those things together, just taking her back and back and back to the ER room until someone paid attention to her.
0: So thank goodness for this person who identified what was going on. Right. What was your response? I mean, what did, what did, is it, it was a he or she?
1: It was a he, it was a, a man, quite a young guy actually called Dr. Shah, who must've been his early thirties, but was already consultant level. So he, he turned up, um, just a couple of days after Matilda and I had been referred to a psychiatric unit by by the team that were looking after her. And I was absolutely desperate at that point because, you know, I remember thinking, you know, it's it's not, it's, this isn't a psychiatric issue. And actually, if it is, that's that's actually the best news you can give me because I can do the naughty step. You know, I've got this parenting thing down. Um, but the, a new guy came into the room, the hospital room that she was in, and, and he actually dismissed the whole team and and told them to go and write her notes up Um, he said that they were illegible and then he sat down with us for about an hour and just listened and Oliver and I started over right from sort of six months ago you know that she couldn't sleep at night but she was always asleep in the day and that she'd become incontinent was slurring her words and that the strangest thing of all about her symptoms was whenever Matilda was happy she would collapse and we we couldn't quite make the connection because it was so odd that whenever she did or experienced joy, she lost complete control of all her muscle tone and, and mm. sort of fell on the floor. So as we're putting all this together to, to Dr. Shah, he said, you know, you need to go home, take her home for the weekend and, and bring her back to me on Monday, but do one thing, video her. Um... And I thought at the time, gosh, that's so easy and uh, borrowed a video camera from my neighbour and and just took quite a lot of film that weekend of her trying to walk towards the trampoline because the idea of bouncing on the trampoline was so joyful that she couldn't get there. Um, Or just her laughing at the table when her brother cracked a joke and Matilda's head kind of collapsed into the cereal bowl and... So we took all the um, video footage back to Dr. Shah a couple of days later and he, he looked through it very quietly twice and Matilda was asleep in the stroller as she always was in the day. So he didn't really have much to go on in terms of like an assessment, but he looked through the, the films and he looked, he looked up at me and said, you know, I've never seen this in a patient under 17, but I think I know what it is. It's, it's narcolepsy.
0: Wow. Yeah. What what was your immediate response? Were you relieved that it wasn't something? Other than that, what did you know about narcolepsy? Um, yeah, I, I mean,
1: I feel like I should have known more about it being a clinician, but physical therapists don't don't do much with patients with sure. narcolepsy, and it's it's a very underrecognized and underreported and a misunderstood condition. So I don't think we see those patients in hospital. Um, I don't think they're on the radar and. Um I just remember thinking you know it sounds like something that's not going to kill her <laughs> because yeah. we were we'd been warned that she might have had you know something much more serious and and her symptoms were so severe. I, I think there were many nights and days when we thought we were going to lose her. So so there was a bit of relief, yeah, actually. I can imagine. A
0: and so now what do you do? What do you, what do, you do with that diagnosis?
1: <laughs> um, well, you, you, he actually took some blood from her to um, confirm that she carried the genetic marker, and rang us back a, a couple of days later to say, yes, um, she does have the genetic marker. And yes, she does definitely have narcolepsy. But in the meantime, you you do what everyone does. I think you just you just Google it, don't you? <laughs> yes. I know can be doc- doc- doctors yeah. hate that. And I, I sort of do understand that. But on the other hand, we were so desperate for information. And for me, I needed to know... Was it treatable? I sort of understood on a fundamental level that she was forever changed and it wasn't curable, but that hope of, of her having kind of a childhood and a life worth living rest in treatment. And and that's sort of what we put our minds to.
0: That's amazing. And I can't imagine what that must've meant for you as parents, um, and then your parents have two other children, mm-hmm. too. So yes. you have to think about how do we navigate this as a family. Right. And I know that you were also having to navigate your husband's career mm-hmm. and what that meant and perhaps having to leave the UK, right. which ended up happening, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, his, um, his job is interesting because... He's able to um, translate his work over here in the U.S. And we hadn't ever really thought about uh, moving over here permanently, although we'd done a couple of postdocs, one at Notre Dame and one in Princeton. But as um, it became really clear to us that Matilda's um, condition needed expert um, and specialist help and treatment, and that that wasn't available to us in England. Then we began to think about maybe Oliver's job translating over here. So um, that was that was a pretty remarkable situation in that he was able to apply for a couple of jobs and on the understanding that he had to prove that he were, he could he was the only guy that could do this job above any American. So it was quite a tall order, really. And that coming to California opened a door at
0: Stanford, I understand, right. or was it the other way around? It was the it? other way around,
1: okay. actually. So we we understood that Stanford was was the world leading center for narcolepsy research and that there was a team there and a, um, a specialist, a man called Professor Mino. and I'd been in touch with his personal assistant, Marley Einin, who herself has narcolepsy, and she was the first person that really gave me a window um, into Matilda's world, this new world that she was inhabiting and this this place really where Matilda went at night when she hallucinated that we just couldn't reach her. So um Aynan basically facilitated um, treatment for Matilda under Professor Minu, but it required a move to the US. And she said, she said two things. One of them was that, you know, if you can get anywhere in the US, we'll get Matilda the drug she needs. And the other thing was, if you can get to California, then Stanford will be her local doctor. So the, the challenge was on. We had to get to, to California. Well, you did. And we're glad, we we,
0: we're glad that you did um, for Matilda's sake above all. But um, um, California is lucky to have you here. And really, this is a great place to tell your story mm-hmm. and has been, I think, a great place because of the resources that are around right. you. I want to tie something up for our listeners really quickly. So was the narcolepsy a result of the vaccination? Yes, okay um, and so now bring us a little bit into what's what's going on with Matilda
1: today. How mm-hmm. old is she she's ten, and how is she doing? she's doing quite well she's um, she's really she's optimally treated on a sort of a, a range of medication. The uh, most important one is a drug called xyrim that she takes uh, twice at night, every three hours. And that enables her to have a block of sleep at, at a time. Um, and she's on some daytime stimulants that help her stay awake when she's at school. Um, and they also help her condense her daytime nap. So without treatment, narcolepsy is incredibly disabling because you, the, the, the people are asleep all day, on and off, and and that's very hard to function when you're that sleepy at all. And yet at night, they can't shut down and sleep Mm. and get restorative sleep. So um, with this kind of very finely tweaked cocktail of medications, Matilda's actually, she's doing quite well, but of course she's entirely dependent on on these medications.
0: Um, So it sounds like she's having really quite a normal childhood as far as... um her circumstances are mm-hmm. concerned. Now let me point back to you as a mother. So if a child needs medication every three hours, there's somebody that's <laughs> getting up to give them that. Yeah. So what does that meant for you and your husband in terms of now that you, you, you keep referring to Matilda's world being changed, but oh, your yeah. world was changed. Yeah. So yeah. what, what was that
1: like? You yeah, know, I would, I mean, casting my mind back all the way to the sort of hideous year when she became ill and we didn't know what was wrong with her right the way through to diagnosis and then um trying to forge forge a a pathway through to her being treated I think all of those things um on a practical level are life-changing but the the struggle I had really was was much deeper than that it was it was an emotional um heart-wrenching and heartbreaking experience that lasted a long time and um when you go through something like that i think it's whether you like it or not life is never the same and yeah. that was that was a real tension for me because i i physically wanted to kind of turn back the clock i remember just trying to think if only i had the power to do that you know rip the clock off the wall and and turn back time the re- the regret around the vaccine and the horror of seeing her suffer so so much was was, was an ongoing nightmare for me. So I think, you know, if if you're honest with yourself, if you've been through something like that, it's what I would call a transformative experience. You are never the same. But you're right to point out the nights because our nights have not been the same either. Um, So Oliver and I take it in turns one night on duty and one night off duty. And the person that's on duty medicates Matilda. They get up with her twice. And also she tends to wake like at five when her meds have worn off and rummage around in the kitchen and try and cut an apple and eat. And So that's a bit messy. So the person that's on duty is, is pretty much up between three and four times a night. It's like, uh, having
0: an infant. Yeah. I mean, and you just wait for those days to be over. I know. But it's, it's,
1: you know, it's never going to be over. It's never going to be over.
0: So the transformation to her life, the transformation to your life and your family's Mm -hmm. life, was this something that you knew I have to write about this? I have to tell this story. What, give us a little bit of why you wanted to tell such a personal story.
1: You know, I think what struck me during the those sort of first two to three years was how quickly I became isolated. You know, I consider myself an extrovert, I was plugged into home school network, I had lots of friends, we were at church, we were we were doing anything and everything. In fact, my, my parents, you know, my nickname is Ten Things a Day Claire because I was so busy <laughs> and I had this incredible capacity to perform and, and do things with the children and people. And I, I kind of love that. But um, when suddenly chronic illness hits your family, things are so changed. And I, I found myself sort of isolated and alone overnight. Um But all the time I was thinking, you know, I know there's other families out there. I know there are other children with narcolepsy. And I came across a few statistics. One of them was that something like 20% of American families deal with someone in their family who has a chronic illness. It might be a child with autism or epilepsy or an elderly parent or something. And the other statistic that really struck me was that and I, I hope I hope this is true, but I've come across it time and time again. Something like ninety percent of marriages where you deal with a child who's chronically ill end in divorce. Mm. So I was very aware of these, uh, or feeling isolated, and the kind of threats that were knocking at at my door. And I thought, you know, if if I'm going through it and and sinking here, <laughs> then I cannot be the only one. And if I can if I can tell my story, which we have come out the other side. Um, you know, as I said, life isn't the same as it was a few years ago, but it is full of hope and, and joy. And, uh, we have what we would call return to something like a near normal life. Um, then I want to reach those people. Yeah. So
0: it wasn't necessarily, I mean, your family knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. This wasn't, for the sake of the the children mm-hmm. to one day look at this was really uh, right. a social sort of reaching out yeah. gift that you wanted to be yeah, able to provide.
1: Th- sort of on two levels. I mean, reaching other um, parents who are struggling and um, is definitely a passion of mine. But also, I think as an adult, if you become ill, you you know you've had your education and your character is formed and. Um, you're able to articulate yourself and maybe even advocate for yourself. And when you think about um, a devastating and disabling illness on a child, when they have no voice, then that is profoundly disturbing to me that they they have nowhere to go with that and and as parents we are their only hope sure. and their advocates so so it is about giving matilda a voice but she represents hundreds of thousands of children and and they matter well <laughs> and
0: i just you know uh, for all the work that you've done the hard work um of being able to re put all these pieces back together so you can tell the story, Mm -hmm. the hard emotional work that you've done. (laughs) Thank you. It's a, it's truly a gift and I don't think you have to be dealing with narcolepsy to be affected by this Mm -hmm. book. Um, I've read through many pages where I can see myself in it. And so I thank you for that gift.
1: Mm. Did you ever want to be a writer, Claire? (laughs) Um, I, um, I went to college to do physical therapy, partly, be- I mean, I loved, love the sciences. I was strong in sciences and I, I love work on the idea anyway of working with people that were ill, but, um, there was definitely a reader in me and I did actually want to go to college to do English, but it was, um, back then not considered a particularly good vocational option, sure. um, in sort of with my background and so forth so I kind of dismissed it like no one in my family had been to college and you know writers are C.S. Lewis and and Oxbridge aren't they and I was sort of not from that stable really so um I was quite happy to pursue the kind of clinical side but uh, reading and I did write poetry long before computers were out there so it's probably just as well none of them are recorded (laughs) but um I, re- I definitely was a reader, um, and I think being married to a writer, that that whole world has been part of my world. It's yeah. been pretty natural, really, to yeah. be able to.
0: Well, it's outstanding. Um Thank you. You uh, gifted me with a few pages <laughs> to read before the book came out, and I, it was such a stark... Um, I guess, experience for me to because I knew you were going to write the book and we had had conversations Mm -hmm. about what that would look like. But then to really have something in my hand and I was like, she's a writer. (laughs) This isn't just about a story that needs to be told. You're quite a gifted writer. Um, So I wanted to know if there was sort of this, (laughs) I've always wanted to do this or was it really, um, I think, pushed into your life because of Matilda's story. And it sounds like mm-hmm. there's a little, yeah, both, both, a little bit of both, a little bit of both. So a lot of women that I talk to who either want to be an author or um, as the case with a few people that I've just interviewed are authors. Mm-hmm. Um, they would not consider themselves uh, entrepreneurial. And I've often said, well, you're producing a product right. and you're finding sellers and you're finding buyers. Yeah. You are in fact An entrepreneur, and I think in this day more than ever, um, where the publishing model isn't what it used to be, Mm -hmm. and people are having to create platforms and an audience um, that is clamoring for for what they're about to produce, that it really takes that sort of entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself (laughs) an entrepreneur?
1: I, yes, I do. <laughs>
0: and did you, in the process? I mean, I just as we walked in to right. set up for this, um, <laughs> on Claire's kitchen table is a giant piece of like craft paper, butcher block paper, um, that you would see in a like a hipster coffee oh. shop or something. That's um, all of her handwritten notes about the strategy, the marketing mm-hmm. strategy. So. That's the kind of stuff that I'm talking right. about. Did you
1: anticipate that when you were writing um, this? I didn't in the first few months, but I quickly got on board with having a longer term vision. I think for the book because it's one thing, isn't it, to you know put your heart and soul on on paper, and but you know what good is that if if it sort of if I just. You know, close the computer lid down or tuck it under the mattress. So, I very much had a vision because I want. I feel so passionate about reaching families and, and parents with with children and giving those children a voice. So, um, I started to look pretty long term even early on, and it, it was um, you know very clear to me that you needed to have a marketing strategy. I mean, I don't particularly love that word, but um, But it's true. (laughs) It's true. And I think uh,
0: this came up uh, when we interviewed another author who kind of made that whole thing like it was ugly and Mm -hmm. it diminished the value. Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's a strategy to get this very powerful piece of information and this very powerful story into someone's hands. And there's nothing ugly
1: about that, right? In fact, I was surprised really because, you know, I came to blogging uh, probably six months into the book somewhat reluctantly because I thought really do I have to you know do I have to do a website and all that as well it's just gonna <laughs> slow me down but you know the wonderful thing about um blogging apart from doing these like vignettes of your life and sort of practicing your writing skills is is the connectedness you have with people sure. and your audience and and that surprises surprises surprised me and um it was just delightful to kind of be able to reach people and impact people and see kind of how effective just a few hundred words were in reaching someone that, you know, lived on the other side of the world. So, so it was hard work, but it, it was, you know, really delightful in terms of me being connected to, I suppose, my audience and, you know, that word platform. Yes, more people read it and that was always pleasant, but um it was it was knowing that what i was writing was resonating with people and if it resonated on a blog post then maybe just maybe yeah my book would touch those souls and that was exciting
0: well and i can imagine that for the blog readers it was this this build up of anticipation that we've been on this journey with claire <laughs> yeah. and now when the book is out we right. can celebrate right. and right. read all of it mm-hmm. it's in Join its it ent- together. entirety, right. yeah, really yeah. get a, a sense of that. Um, now that you're a published author, and I would say, I don't know if you say, but an advocate, mm-hmm. um, which of those two titles do you hold most dear? Yeah.
1: Um. That's a difficult one. I, I don't want to like wimp out of that question, but I, I do, I do, I I do want to you. say they are mute. They are compatible. Okay. Very much so. And I think, you know, as an advocate, you're empowered and, and have more credibility. If you can stand on a platform with, with a book in your hand, um, and equally as an author, you have a voice to be an advocate. So those things sort of are very married to me. And, um, I think they you know I I feel if I have a a platform to stand on at a conference or when I speak um both of those are are apparent in you know how I deliver and, sure. and my story it's very hard to disconnect one from the other because my my story is um is about both really well, and I would think
0: one offers the other credibility, right. validation. Right. Um, it, it in and of itself mm-hmm. is its own platform, yes. um, depending on the particular venue or audience yeah. that you're speaking to. Um, okay, so this is where we sort of transition. Um, but actually, before that, I want to ask you what kind. Of, what is your next move, personally? You've talked about you want this book to be. Um, a long-term project. Mm -hmm. A lot of people put out a book and it's it's exciting and there's Mm -hmm. all this energy around it and then it's, it's over. And for you, because of the story Mm -hmm. and because of the people that you want to touch and because you are acting as an advocate, it has a longer life. But what's, Mm -hmm. what do you view as next? Is there another book on the horizon? Are you going to spend time (laughs) on a speaking circuit? What can Um, we expect from you? I think there's
1: two things again, going back to the previous question. One of them is that, um, As an advocate, I'd like to continue to give to reach those families and and give those children a voice through through my our own story and um, speaking on how to raise children who are chronically ill and live fully. That's that's something I think that's um, really passionate um, to me that it's one thing to have a chronically ill child, but you don't kind of have to live, you know, where I was a few years ago, like broken and Mm. just couldn't see a way forward there there is a way forward and having come out the other side i want i want to share that with people that life doesn't look the same that matilda can't do all the things her friends can do sure. but she can do these other things and those things are really beautiful and meaningful and they they give her and our lives meaning so there's that um definitely on the advocacy side um and on the writing side i've i've loved the process so much that um and even just like setting up my own publishing company and um getting that book in my hands i think there's a lot to share with how how that process works out and how exciting it is and how doable it is i mean yeah. i'm surprised that yeah you know a few years ago i was still like knocking on all those publishers doors and waiting for the email that four months later came through and said it's really well written but <laughs> uh,
0: we don't make the dumb person honestly. sound american i'm sorry <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah sorry it's okay um so I think that you know um self-publishing is is super exciting right now and it's moving at an incredible rate and I, I want. I want to be part of that. And that I'm asking you that question oh, the that second sex? half yeah, because sorry, it's, it's.
0: It's. I'm so excited that you self published and that Yay. we we have you to to inform us. So now, for real, okay. we're going to transition right. into you as the expert into you sharing advice with our listeners. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that are listening who either want to write, have right. always dreamed of writing a book, don't know where to start, right. are intimidated. Um, or on the flip side, think all they need to do is put up a few blog posts and everything (laughs) is going to be dandy. So we want you to sort of give us the skinny on those things quickly, um, why don't you start with since you were talking about the the self publishing thing? Why did you make a decision to self publish versus because you? The reality is the book is so good that if you waited a little bit longer, Maybe. It, it, it it could have happened. So, Maybe. what give us um, that process? I think tell the, us that process. The project
1: for me was time sensitive. I want I I really knew there was a story there, and I was determined to write it, and I was well on my way, and. I really didn't like the idea of people slowing me down. I didn't I didn't want to hand over to, you know, wait three or four months for an agent to say, mm, you know, it's gone through to the next stage and let you know at Christmas. You know, I thought I'm over that. Um, I think I can do a better job and I can do it on my timeline and I can be as creative as I want with every aspect of the process. And seeing as I'm going to have to market this book anyway, I might as well get the profit for it. So, um, let me, I'm going to stop you there because that's a really, really, really important distinction
0: (laughs) that a lot of people don't (laughs) Don't understand. And, um, I'm only saying this, I don't usually do this, but I'm only going to tell a little bit of my own story here because it applies to what Claire's saying. So, I had a book that was published by a major publisher. And one of the things that I thought or that I (laughs) misunderstood... Was was that aside from the distribution... That there was a marketing vehicle in place. And what I quickly realized was I was the one having to Mm -hmm. get the Barnes and Nobles gigs up and do all the speaking. I was the one that was going to have to advocate for myself Mm -hmm. and really come up with this strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think if anybody thinks that's what they're getting, unless you are a celebrity and you have a book that's going to sell a million copies, um, it's not going to happen. Uh, and so the distinction between self-publishing and publishing in a in a more traditional way, if if that's what you're hanging on to, mm-hmm. we're here to tell you, <laughs> let go, yeah. let go, because that is not yeah. that is not part of the package. Okay, so I apologize, but I I think that was a really important yes, distinction. It is. So
1: I think you're spot if, on with
0: that. If you didn't have a husband who had written books, and if you didn't have the ability, because I'm sure people told you along the way, like. You are a writer here. You've got something. Would you have been so bold as to self publish?
1: Well, I actually wanted to self publish early on. Oh, you did? I did because I, I've seen him publish 20 books and get a check through after seven months <laughs> for 17 cents. Yeah. And not even be worth walking down to the bank to cash in. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying everything's about money, but, you know, there isn't a marketing strategy. Well, he's no, got, you like, actually end up being beholden to right. the publisher. No, it's so it's this hard, yeah, it's hard for you to move he, that. And also he's a false forward. writer, unlike me, and he'd submit a book, and honestly, it would go go out the window. We'd not even think about it for two years, and then it would and I just thought, I don't want to wait two years. Yeah. There's print on demand technology people. Come on, yeah. you know. What are we waiting There's for? There's create space. There's so many resources. I mean, in fact, it's overwhelming to try and kind of sift your way through what, what's a good fit for you. But, you know, with that amount of available and affordable resource you know i i i want to talk about cost for a little bit because my budget was minimal for my book and um, I've already broken even on it. So I'm only five weeks in and I get that That's it's not awesome. all about money, but you know, I've paid in- Why though? Why do we diminish it and say, it's not all about money. Right. It,
0: it costs money to publish these things. And wouldn't it be lovely <laughs> if there was some residual income that was coming <laughs> oh, from this after, really after all of your hard work? I think it's totally yeah. fair to and talk think, about money. I
1: think the, the fiscal reality was definitely up there for me in um, deciding to go on the self-published route. So actually my husband was like, you know, is a lot more kind of kudos with, with being in a, you know, going trade. I'm like, but I don't need kudos. I don't need a job. I don't need to be,
0: that's professor
1: right. I don't need someone to tell me a good I know I've got a story yeah. <laughs> and I know I can write it so actually yeah, she just said that everybody <laughs> we should just drop the mic and end this right now That's, no um, you're right um, I didn't actually then I started to turn it around and think actually these these traditional publishers they're holding me back mm. they're holding me back they're slowing me down they're not going to give me what I'm going to I want and they're going to make me work for it and I've done the work so well, I'm going to take it and run and and I think because self-publishing is moving so fast and is there are so many opportunities and you know you hold a a self-published book now and you can't tell the difference. You know, five years ago I think you would have said, Oh, it looks a bit, you know, looks a bit self-published or whatever. I think that technology's changed. Um and with print on demand right there you can upload your book onto create space and 7 days later hold it in your hand. I don't know a single publisher that would do that for you. No.
0: No, it it there isn't. There isn't, there isn't one. No. And I would I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, <laughs> but I would also add that you even in the publishing process you have to have your own editors, your own you cannot rely right. on that beast that Mm. machine because of what's happening in the publishing world these 22 year old graduates are there every few months there was somebody else doing the editing and no one knew where the last person left off and so I think what's happening in the publishing world is affecting the traditional publishing model and what's happening at lightning speed as you mentioned in the self-publishing world is starting to it's starting to build scaffolding for really good writers to go out and do right. their own thing, yeah. and the um, I think it used to be that you wanted the traditional publisher so that you could say I had blah blah blah. It doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm people want access to information Mm -hmm. and there if there's a blogger that Mm -hmm. can get the attention that they can get then surely a self-published book you know could do the trick yeah so tell us a little bit more because I think this is a really important subject I want to spend some time on is there somebody that you would recommend you know what perhaps you should go the traditional publishing model versus um this wasn't a trick question but (laughs) I always want to know because sometimes we say things and we say oh that was good for me right, but for right. someone else
1: yeah um it is a good question i think you know if 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 your career um and job depend on being trade published like if you're an academic and mm. you need the cu- kudos yeah. of publishing with oup or whatever are then- you saying kudos yes, just for kudos, our kudos, <laughs>
0: I'm teasing you. Did I say right? You You said it perfectly. I
1: I prefer the way you say it. Actually, if you need that, then knock yourself out. Yeah, Um, I'm not sure who who else other than scholars in the academy would need to go trade at this point? Yeah. That, that sounds a bit of a, a wide statement, but fiction, nonfiction, you know, I've been in a writing salon and people are doing everything from memoir to mystery to YA to poetry and, and totally successful and, yeah. and, um, kind of realizing their dreams and, and not being held back. So I'm not, I'm not sure other than academics. That, that's a, No, that's a good answer. And
0: I think, again, yeah. an important distinction. Right. Um, okay, so there's a woman listening right now and she's thinking that she's always wanted to do this writing thing. What personality trait do you think mm-hmm. a writer must have and you would mm-hmm. say, if you don't have this, just find something else. Go start yeah, a yoga yeah. studio. right? Um, and, but if you have this, you're golden.
1: Okay. So if you have even the slightest bit of introversion, I think you can do it. Now, I've, I was an extrovert in another life. And, and partly that changed for me when Matilda became sick. And I was just home a lot more and a lot more reflective and alone. And um But writing um, is somewhat isolating because you're like physically sat down Mm. for a few hours a day. So um, that might be challenging for wild extroverts. I personally like, I like that time out. um, So um, that sort of feeds my introversion. And when I'm needing company and I'm still writing, then that's where writing groups and and conversations with other authors come in. So if you were like right off the end of the extrovert spectrum, yeah. you might struggle a little bit. <laughs> okay, that's good. Just that <laughs>
0: sitting still and being with
1: yourself. Yes, you yeah. need to be happy with that for sure. Yeah, Definitely. I think
0: you talked about you were more of an extrovert mm-hmm. and then in your case through Matilda's story and, and what happened with her. But I would say it's it seems to me that as people... Uh, get more wise backslash older Right. Um, that we start to settle into mm-hmm. some personalities right. that we didn't necessarily right. own as we were younger. Because yeah. I, I think I'm moving more into that introverted right. space as I... Right.
1: Or maybe something to do with like... I quite like being with myself. Yeah. No, I actually think
0: that I, that I think I'm there's more, a lot I'm of op- wisdom in I'm that okay statement. Company, you yeah, know? I'm, I'm okay company. Yeah, uh, I'm okay company. This um, isn't too bad. No, no. And I'm more comfortable in my right. own skin. I hope that's what it is. I hope it's not just because I'm lazy and I don't want to go out. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit of that too. Um, you had talked a bit ago about uh, a wealth of resources mm. for self-publishing. Mm-hmm do any come to mind that you can share with our listener? And we will ask you this um, later and then we can put this in the show notes. So if 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 nothing comes to mind. Yeah, there's
1: loads and loads of books. I mean, there's, um, you know, Bird by Bird, um, Anne Lamont. Always recommended, yeah. Always recommended Stephen King's um, memoir on writing. I've got like 20 books over there, which I'll give you. But if you're just tapping away on the keyboard, check out The Creative Pen by Joanna Penn and the online resources... Um, just on that website alone because she's a she's an incredible communicator and, and will link you to podcasts all over the web. So just hit the creative pen and you'll be there for like a week. Oh, that's just, great. Yeah, it's incredible, the resources. She's so far ahead of the game. And um, everything from like cover art to soft launch to post-launch depression to, you know, why to self-publish and um, all those things all those little worries that you have as, as you start out, she, she covers somebody's a bit. holding your hand yeah. along the and way. She, oh, that's she great. She connects everyone with everyone. So there's, there's a good place to start. Okay.
0: That's a great tip. Thank you for that. Um, okay. Talk to us about the day to day. Did you have a strict writing schedule mm. and do you recommend that?
1: Yes, I did. Um, I have to, you know, because I do medication with Matilda at night, I'm, tend to be you know not quite so awake at certain times of the day so for me it's really been important to stay connected to the family and the kids and and what's going on with the professor so I get them off to school and the other the other thing that's quite important to writing as well as just sort of sanity and my sleep habits but is actually to do a little bit of exercise not too much but so I hit I hit the gym or Zumba or something between like eight and nine and then head back to the house and I write between ten and two in the afternoon. And Is that because that's a great? Yeah, it's my most creative time for you. Yeah, okay. it was my most alert. Okay, awake. Um, <laughs> and then I sort of after that, I think. I mean, for me, I can't. I can't really do a lot more than four to five hours of intensive writing. And sometimes it's revision or um if i'm having you know if i hit a wall with a paragraph i'll ditch it and and read uh yeah. read memoir or just immerse myself in in the genre or just get some writing tips or blog switch to my blog or website so really those 4 hours and then after that once the kids are home it's all over <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yes it is and it truly is all over <laughs>
0: Okay, Claire, what do you wish you would have known when you began this process?
1: Oh, I think the answer to that is somewhere it rests in self-belief. Hmm. I think I wish I'd known I actually could hold that book. Cause there are so many days where I thought I can't do it and it's too hard and certain obstacles that would come my way, like getting rejected from publishers, sure. so, you know, you have to develop a really, really thick skin and make this decision that, you know what, everyone has a bad day and that is not going to change the trajectory that I'm on. So, um, I think a little bit more self-belief, just you can do it. You can do it. You can do it.
0: How can you give that self-belief to a listener? who's going through that right now because it's you're you're saying that on Mm -hmm. the on the other side on the other side you've come out there so what could you have done or is it just a just just believe even if there's no evidence of anything (laughs) other than um you can do it
1: no I think it's like it's that question isn't it how hungry are you how much do you want it Like, are you prepared to sacrifice things and move your calendar and put some aspects of your life on hold and take it when people say, "Mm, you know, have you thought about doing something else or, um, or you get rejections? Like what voice are you listening to? Are you listening to that? Or is it that, that fire in your belly, that inner voice that says, you know what, I'm going to do it. And if I have to move obstacles, I'll move them and I'll pick myself up the next day, however tired I am and however hard it is, because at the end of this, I'm going to get this done.
0: And was getting it done about getting the book published or was getting it done about getting this story of Matilda and your your life and your family's life? What was the mm. What was the thing that, and perhaps it switched day yeah. to day, but yeah. what was the thing that fueled that fire in your belly
1: yeah I think early on it was definitely about getting the story out and um just working through all those memories and those emotions and that was sort of a bit ugly for the first two years and I'd once I'd processed that and it it was therapeutic to put it I hate that but it it actually was really helpful to to put it down because I felt like you know people the doctors should have listened to us and they should have taken us seriously and she should have had treatment and we shouldn't have had to have moved halfway around the world to to get her the care yeah. that all these other kids in the UK still don't have so there was some kind of validation in that putting those things down but towards the end of the project so easy to give up at the end because it yeah. just gets harder yeah in the last three or four months there are, is there were incredible obstacles to overcome and, uh, and then it became more about like, I've got the story down, now I need to put it in people's hands. So, so it did change slightly and it's, you know, do I finish this project, project or does it, does it go under, does it go in the drawer? I don't know.
0: Well, and now that it is finished um, and you have that piece in your hand mm-hmm. that you can be proud of, it's not over. You are just still trying to get it right. in people's hands. Yeah. So what is that um, challenge been like? And is it, something that you feel prepared for because you have this book and you're mm-hmm. like, no, I want to, I, I believe in this now, right. or is it altogether a new challenge? Well, I
1: love learning. Um, and I do sort of like a new challenge really. So <laughs> I think, I think I'm on board for a new challenge. It is, is completely new to me, this sort of post-launch marketing. Cause just mm-hmm. when you think, oh, I can, you know, sit down and plan a vacation, it's like, okay. And your sales are dipping. So what are you yeah. going to do about it? Um, And there's, again, there's a lot of resources and energy around post-launch marketing and um, I'm sort of seeing it as a new, a new learning curve really. So it's quite exciting. Yeah. And the post-launch
0: dip is natural. It's it's expected and that's why those first few weeks are so important. You know, you could
1: write the best book in the world and it'd be over in six months. Yeah. so it's really what's next, yeah. That's that's the million dollar question. Have you seen anything, or perhaps it's even in
0: this, uh, you know, some of the resources that you shared with us um, that has addressed the the marketing strategy? Something to look out for, something to to mm-hmm. plan ahead that. Um, maybe you didn't listen to and you said, Oh, if
1: only yeah, I would have. Right. Yeah. Because then, you know, when you do a website and a blog, I mean, I love the writing side of it. Never been super comfortable in front of a camera. So I've sort of shied away from that and over and over again you can see when people put like a 20 second video like the one you put of your daughter yeah. I like I watch all those they're brilliant oh. of, her singing. <laughs> of her singing yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, and there's, yes, some, yes. there's something about video that just catches yeah. people and I I've not done that and I probably just should buy some gear and or
0: I think you should, and I think you should. You don't have to buy any gear. You, you know some people. Lots of people love you. They can they can come up with oh a video dear. for you. But I've seen you live. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at your book launch. Right. And you were hilarious. <laughs> and you told the story in such a compelling way, which our viewers have just listened to to that themselves. But um, you brought something that was really painful Um you, you, you brought some humor to it. You brought real life to it mm-hmm. and you made the audience around you aware of what their own Matilda story is okay. in their life. Okay. And I think part of that is because we're experiencing you live. So okay. I'm encouraging okay. you to get in front of a <laughs> camera. A good challenge. Plus you're adorable. Oh, so, you're so come sweet. on, get, get in front of okay. a camera I'll you can do it. it. Uh, I think you should. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that's something that you're saying to the listener mm-hmm. actually, like, take advantage yeah. of some of the mediums that are out right. there just because you're writing and you're a writer doesn't mean you can't take advantage yeah. of whatever else there is have you benefited from mm. from social media yeah, in yeah
1: i have in fact it was i think it was you that taught me the hashtag about two years ago yeah. i've never <laughs> even heard of a hashtag <laughs> oh, I think well, we were yeah. on the phone <laughs> and i'm thinking yeah. what's a hashtag yeah <laughs> i've come a long way in that time in fact i mean the one thing i want to get a bit more into i can't, my my kids won't believe i'm saying this but, but it's youtube isn't it because yeah. those those pithy videos that these authors write that are super funny and they're like in the back of their garage and yeah. the dogs like throwing up in the background, yeah. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I could well, do it makes that. Makes them actually. very real. It makes them it's very so real, real. And I think that's. That's what you relate to, you yeah. know. I mean, I would still love to have lunch with J.K. Rowling, but I, I'll take the YouTube videos. And so, yeah, get—they're not mutually exclusive. No, we right, can I should both do both. dream bigger, yeah, girl, yeah, yeah. dream bigger. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would sort of try and push out into some of these areas of social media that you might not necessarily think's you, yeah. Um, because hey, what's the worst that can happen? You can laugh at yourself, and we all make mistakes. And I think you know, for it looks great. The book looks great and it looks like this great success. But I tell you for every day that's been successful, I've probably had seven that have been terrible. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that's, I think a really important
1: right. piece of information that everyone should just oh, assume. Yeah. That- no, I've cried buckets over not being able to write a sentence or What did you do? What did you
0: do in those situations? Did you learn um, to walk away or did did you push through?
1: I did. Sometimes I did cry for, for, you know, through myself, a a a a 20 20 minute pity party. But I, my husband's very much like, get over it, get up, get on, you can do it. I believe in you. And so I've had, I've had like a homemade cheerleader and that's been huge. Because I do respect, like, I honestly don't think he would say it was good if it was rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> I no, really don't I don't think, think he would. His I name don't think would he go would. down, wouldn't it? Um, so I think, no, I have, I have, you know, really hit some bad points with it. But it all, all boils down to this, this notion I was raised, really, sort of in, in West London in the 70s. You know, never, ever give up. Yeah. And somehow that's stuck with me. I think it's a I think it's a good thing to have stick with mm-hmm. you. Um,
0: I want to go back to something you just said about your husband and a great cheerleader. Right. So if we can anticipate for every one day there's a <laughs> good day, there's seven bad well, yeah. days. It sounds like having a support system, whether right. it's a writing group, right. whether it's a built in cheerleader like mm-hmm. a husband or a spouse, I should say um, who. It sounds right. like you're saying it's necessary to have that because you've already talked about how much time you're spending right. alone. Yeah. And you I think that self-talk, that negative self-talk can mm-hmm. really eat you up as a writer. You're mm-hmm. not in necessarily in community with other people right. on a daily basis. Right. When you, so yes, you're saying have a cheerleader.
1: Yeah, find find okay. some
0: when you have that cheerleader, are they the people that are supposed to be reading bits of the book and saying, yes, keep going. No, this is terrible. Mm. Are they, are, is that the same person? It
1: shouldn't be in an ideal world. I mean, I had to get, um, Oliver had to read the book because he's in it. And I was acutely aware of the um, many times where he would crop up in a chapter and maybe not be completely happy with what, what I'd sort of recorded. But yeah, ide- ideally, I think you try and um, separate, separate those people that you've asked to read the book and your chapters and feedback. And, and those, for me, that was my writing group, but also um, some, some kind of people that I knew in the writing business who were sort of impartial, but I could rely on their, um, feedback as being honest. Cause it's no good if you just tell me it's great and it's not. Um, so your cheerleaders are those people that are going to have, you know, coffee with you and ask how it's going, even if it's going terribly. And they're still going to say, Hey, you know what? You're doing a great job. Keep going. So yeah i think
0: i'm glad that you made that distinction mm-hmm. because i think sometimes we assume it's the person right. who loves us the most and is closest to us and they're right. not always the person in fact, i, did, I did make that. the
1: mistake of sending it sending a few chapters to my sister because she's a reader and she was also in the book and but i i sort of had in my head that she would send it you know send some comments back you know critical comments yeah. um and she just sort of got got few chapters in and said it's too heartbreaking I can't do it and I realized Uh. at that point that I'd asked too much of her and she was the wrong person to ask because she's my sister and she loves me so I can't expect her to come heavily down on me for my, you know, grammar or sentence structure. Well, especially or, given the subject matter. Right. If so the subject matter were I different. I learned, yeah,
0: I, I learned some Okay, that. so subject matter matters. That's yes. That's good, good to know. Okay, okay. so this, we're going to switch things up again. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of our fun, silly part of the interview that we just, we want yeah, our but, readers to get to know you a bit. So we call <laughs> it our quick six. So I'm just going to ask you a question and just quickly give um, your answer. Okay. So do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? schedule how come i knew that you, you were <laughs> gonna say that um vacation in the mountains or the beach it's
1: um difficult mountains well both but mountains first then beach. okay okay
0: It's good to have them in order.
1: Um, Prefer working
0: from home or an office? Definitely home. Okay. Well, I wish everyone could see. um, (laughs) We're going to take pictures of Claire's um, writing den. It's outside amongst the trees. It's (laughs) absolutely adorable. Um, And then would you rather work alone or with a team? I think we know the answer.
1: Alone, but I... I like a little, I like a small team to back me up, especially when it comes to technology. I need a bit yeah. of help with that. So yeah. I do you have a little team. Know what you're I've not my good back. at and get oh, those I people. Oh, I definitely know what I'm not good at. <laughs>
0: um, and then would you prefer Thai or
1: Mexican food? Um, years ago it would have been Thai because Thai, Thai food's great in England and uh, don't, they don't have Mexican here, but fallen in love with Mexican food since living in LA. Yeah. So I'm afraid that's now Mexican. Okay.
0: All right. You're the second person that's answered that. So I, I'm glad to have some people liking Mexican food. And then this one, um, My favorite question, you know, the name is Liberty Sessions. And we've named it that because we think that women can be liberated through pursuing whatever they're passionate Mm -hmm. about. Um, So what does it mean for you to be liberated, Miss Claire Chris?
1: Well, there's two answers to that. I'll be quick. Um, First, for me, I mean, it would have been a different answer years ago, but of course now I think the answer to that means to be free of of emotional pain and to be able to kind of um, live a life fully that while isn't you know, perhaps ideal or not exactly what I thought I was signing up to is, is still very rich and wonderful and, and, and not to be in that place where I felt trapped and heartbroken. Mm-hmm. So, and the other answer to that is, you know, my daughter, my eldest daughter is called mm-hmm. Liberty. I do. I do. And, um, the professor named her when the moment she was born, cause I had these other cute names lined up like Imogene and, you know, Hermione and this sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we'd lost our first baby some years before and um, when the professor brought this this scrunched up little ball, six pound ball to my side, he said, we're going to call her Liberty. And frankly, I'd never, we hadn't even talked about it. And I'm like, where you've changed, you've changed the plan. That's, that's not right. You yeah. know, she's going to be Cressida or something. Yeah. And he said, no, her name is Liberty because she has set me free.
0: Oh, oh, I love that. So I love that name. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being honest and sharing your adventure. Can you tell us really quickly where we can get the book, Waking Matilda?
1: Yeah, go to Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. It's called Waking Matilda, A Memoir of Childhood Narcolepsy." Um, or check out my website Claire c. Crisp. that's c-l-a-i-r-e c for christine and crisp c-r-a-s-p dot com and you'll find the book and my blog and um, some cool photos and and we'll photos. have all of
0: that in the show notes too so thank there's you. no chance that right. somebody won't have the information Sounds they good. need all right claire thanks so thank much thank you bye thank you Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. Liberty is spelled L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-F-O-R-H-E-R. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Wyndham, and music by Jordan Flower. And just remember, there is life after the top knot, as evidenced here. See you next week.